Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Hello. Yeah, we're here today to talk about Ian Rankin's Knots and Crosses, the first of his John Rebus detective stories. And we're very excited to be here. We've had uh, quite a nice little run over the last few weeks, Josh, starting with Ellis Peters' A Morbid Taste for Bones. That was a fun discussion, even though it wasn't a book that came out too clean from the wash. And after that, we had two Sherlock Selects, which we shared with listeners. And now we're back to talk about Ian Rankin. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to this. Earlier we were talking about going through his books one by one. Mm-hmm. Now, with the format that we've decided upon, we're only really mm-hmm. going to be doing the first book by right. Ian Rankin, yep. uh, Knots and Crosses. Mm-hmm. Now, will we want to pursue it further? That's the ah. question that will be answered at the end of this episode. That's right. That's always the question that we ask when we are dealing with a first in the series. Uh, we are going to review this book, of course, as we do all of our books, according to our PIPES acronym for Principles, Investigation, perpetrator, environments, and secondary characters. But when we do come across a series starter, we will ask ourselves uh, and each other at the end whether we're keen to continue. But this is this is an interesting story, much different from our last big read, uh, Ellis Peters. Instead, we're moving almost a thousand years into the future, aren't we? Indeed we are. Yeah, we're The future setting. of 1985. Mm-hmm. And we're setting this, this story is set in Edinburgh. Uh, Ian Rankin is a Scottish writer. We'll just get down to some biographical points Which in Which is more moments. medieval than the previous story. In a way, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think maybe as a preface, Josh, um, I would like to ask you this question. Um, I, I live in Scotland, and though Canadian-born, I've been here for 15 years now, uh, teaching away. Um, I'm quite familiar with Edinburgh, its sites, its smells, its history. You have been to the city. I'm somewhat familiar. Yeah, it's it's been a while, but you're well read on the city as well. Did this... You were a good guide. Well, just as a starting point, did uh, Knots and Crosses bring anything back to you, or was it projected? Like, did you feel yourself forcing those memories? No, uh, it definitely brought a lot back to me. And you know how we talked about how, like, the undercity of Edinburgh, you know, you mentioned about how, like, some of the be underneath the pubs that mm-hmm. we went to, for example, the sure, next yeah. door of a barrister's yeah. office, mm-hmm. beneath there was, like, all the people were shut up from the plague and left to yeah. die down there. Mary and Queen's stuff. Close and, and all of that stuff, yeah. Exactly. Uh, to me, I had that, you know, that picture-perfect view of the city, this, mm-hmm. like, ideal kind of, like, uh, very... In a, in a way, very educated Scottish city, you know, like, you know, a, a picturesque Scottish city mm-hmm. uh, with all this medieval imagery and and tourist attractions, I guess you could say. Uh, and underneath it, you have this underbelly of corruption and intrigue and uh, more nefarious things going on than what the surface would tell you. Uh, so yeah. I responded to the imagery in my mind immediately by what was presented in the story. And I was also, and that forced me to dig deep, I think, into this story more so than other ones that we've done so far, uh, because I was given that, because I've been to Edinburgh, I've been shown the manhole, I've been given Mm -hmm. a ladder, and then I was able to descend into it easily uh, and take part into that world. And as I mentioned to you, I only read this not a couple of days ago, and I started at six o'clock in the evening and finished quarter to 11 that same evening. So Wow. Yeah. Quick read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was an impetus as to why I was reading it quickly. Of but course, at the same yeah. time, even if I'm forced to read something quickly, uh, it, it, w- it wouldn't have been that quickly. So I did enjoy what I read as a bit of a preface to, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. our pipes down the road. But 
Yeah, Edinburgh came to life for, for, for me, and the world Good. beneath it easily became to life. What I want to ask you, Scott, uh-huh. is do you feel that this book captured aspects of Scotland, a Scotland that you knew? Well, that, that's no, a good question. Yeah, I would say that it has. It has done, even though it was written and set, I guess, contemporarily, at least uh, years before my arrival here. It does certainly tap into features of the Scottish psyche. But, you know, it was James Elroy, the American author, who, who coined the term tartan noir. And Josh, I'm not yeah. so sure. I'm not so sure that there's anything more than just like a, a cheap soundbite behind that. And the reason I, and I'm, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to put down anybody's graduate or undergraduate work and thesis, you know, about the tartan noir history. I'm just saying, like, is it, is it really such a thing? Like, there is certainly a Scottish identity, and there are, to answer your question, I think, more directly before I go down this rabbit hole. Uh, yes, I could perceive things very Scottish about the story, about Rebus's character. There are certain things about that, um, you know, that working class uh, approach to his job that he has, that sort of existence that he sort of flounders about. And there are certainly Scottish, bleak, um, or, you know, drick, as a Dreek. Grim the, dark. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Th- there's an element to that for sure. But I also ask you and the listeners who, who kind of subscribe to ideas of the tartan noir, like, is it really that much different to a noir or an investigative or a dark mystery that's set in the Southern States that now has the, oh. now has the, the, the label of, you know, Southern Gothic detective mystery. Like, is there really a exactly. need to sub genre and sub sub genre and categorize these? No, I think that the tartan noir is a misnomer because in a yes. world of labels and in a world of nomenclature and categorization, we love to have little, you know, bumper stickers to stick on things. And just because a book is written or set in Scotland, does it become a tartan noir? Is that even a fucking thing? I'm not so sure, but as we talk, as we talk about the book today, we can uh, we can discuss and maybe flesh that one out. Yeah, I think that's a good point of contention uh, that we yeah. can explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. To me, uh, I found this story. Yeah, it wasn't really feel like a noir to me at all. Uh, that's my impression. I felt it was much more akin. It was very Dickensian, uh, mm-hmm. which is a word I'll probably use a couple times during this uh, breakdown. But it was Dickensian. And it reminded me of a series like, for example, uh, there was a British miniseries called Red Riding a few few way years back uh, that was similar subject matter. Uh, You also have, you know, a lot of BBC procedurals these days like this. This has Prime Suspect on it. This has, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, similar series. Uh, but the fact that the exploration of like institutions, not just the the detective bureau, but also you know just of the corruption and the politics involved and the media, all those all the estates, I guess, of society uh, being portrayed in this uh, in this book reminds me a lot also of uh, the HBO series uh, The Wire as well. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I'll ask you a thing or two about HBO series as we get to the, towards the end of our pipes, but mm-hmm. I'll hang on to it for now. Anyway, listen, uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you're enjoying the season uh, more, more generally. Uh, we know it's a little bit unorthodox. Instead of doing what we have done the first two seasons where we've deep dived into a particular writer and his, uh, his fictional character, um, we're looking at you know, a survey of, of interesting series and non-series um, detective fiction. But yeah, we, we are, I think it's fair to say, Josh, looking at the first in series for the most part, for the most part. 
Yes, that's how I, yeah. you, that's how you could define this on the uh, outset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as always, everyone, you know, you can um, check out our, our back catalog of other episodes and get in touch on the socials or email us if you'd like. Let us know how uh, how you're enjoying the season at uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com. But Josh, um, preamble almost finished, unless there's something else you'd like to raise before we get started. Let's talk a wee while. Preamble just- is done for me. Good. Let's just talk a little bit about Ian Rankin then as a setup to this story. Like uh, our previous um, author, Ellis Peters, Mm -hmm. uh, he's also a Knight's... S-O-B-E, what is it? Uh, or, or, Order or the of British the British Empire. Empire. Yep, that's right. Yeah. yeah. He is indeed. Ian Rankin was born in 1960 in Cardenden in Fife, which is, for those of you not familiar with Scottish geography, it's out on the eastern, cent- central eastern tip, uh, just north of Edinburgh. You're thinking St. Andrews, you're thinking Perth, Kirkcaldy, Dundee, that area is all sort of fiefdom. Okay, and it's a lovely part of the country. He uh, edu- he was educated at Beath High School in Cowden Beath. Uh, it's a school I know quite well, even though I'm teaching in the south because um, I'm a basketball coach here as well. And uh, we've beaten Beath High School a few times, which is uh, always nice to get in there whenever I can. Although I must say our basketballing is uh, slim to none right now in the COVID climate. Uh, sorry to hear that. That's okay. We'll get back. I assumed, um, but... <laughs> yeah. Ian Rankin, he studied literature at Edinburgh University, graduated in 1982. Uh, He pursued a doctorate on the work of Muriel Spark, who's a great Scottish writer in her own right. Uh, You'll know her, I'm sure, from works like The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, which is just a fantastic novel. Um, Memento Mori and The Public Image, which uh, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. I read that in a uh, book club, my faculty book club here just a while ago. So he was encouraged into, yeah, he was encouraged into that doctorate. Not by his family, though. His his parents were very happy about his uh, vocation. They were not very happy about that at all, but his English teacher encouraged him that way. And uh, though he never finished the doctorate work, he he did do a lot on Muriel Spark. But after graduation, he moved to London, where he worked as a writer for magazines um, before moving to France for a few years at the behest of his wife, who said that if he was serious about becoming a writer, then he would need to do it uh, in isolation. He would, you know, she's quite a supportive figure. And um, in, a, in a more personal note, they have uh, they have two children of their own uh, now. And Knots uh, and Crosses was published in 1985 before he moved to France and he hadn't intended it to become a series, and I'll get back to that point in uh, in a little in a little moment or two. Mm. It was actually with his. I know eighth... it was his first book, mm-hmm. but no, that's no. very interesting. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah, it was with his eighth Rebus novel, Black and Blue, that he was brought to worldwide acclaim. He's regarded as some, uh, like I mentioned, James Elroy, uh, as the king of tartan noir, and you know that that's an expression that I think some would argue is a sub-genre of its own. I don't really see it. I don't hold that belief. And I feel it's a pretty meaningless soundbite. It's just something that means Scottish crime. Like, I know that these are the sorts of labels on which um, undergraduate and graduate theses are written and, you know, explored, but I don't know. I mean, Scotland has its own traditions, its own styles, atmospheres, and motifs, which are unique to its its rich history. But tartan noir, it's just a label for the sake of labels, isn't it? I mean, that, that's my opinion. But I don't know. True Detective, you know, Josh comes to mind as an example of the Southern Gothic police procedural. But is it? 
not just a police procedural set in the South. Do you know what I mean? Which exactly. has its own traditions, its own styles. I don't know that it's a subgenre, really, but happens, instead a factor of situation. Well, yeah, that's the, what you think of a subgenre is. Like, I think subgenres, uh, they develop as they are. Like, for mm-hmm. example, we know that, like, in the late 1900s, sorry, late 1800s, you get the development of the American horror, no- of American horror stuff, yes. like, yeah. Stuff, you know, like The King in Yellow mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then eventually you get into Lovecraft and from Poe and onwards. So you could say that there's American horror writers and American horror is definitely a genre that emerged in the late 1900s. You could say, for example, that uh, Southern Gothic is because there's a series of writers that lived in that area and mm-hmm. wrote stories set in that area that had those themes then you could then create a context of them being their own subgenre, but subgenre I think is a very uh, liquid term. Yeah, it is it's, fluid. Yeah, you know, it is very fluid. Yeah, fluid is the word I was looking for. It was trickly in some capacity, but um, <laughs> trickling down apparently. Uh, <laughs> well, Rankin now uh, he lives at least partly in Edinburgh, and interestingly, I was listening to an interview with him. He um, he's talking about the first house he bought after some you know financial success when he returned to Edinburgh, and uh, just up the road from him was J.K. Rowling <laughs> in the house. And his next door neighbor was Alexander McCall Smith, who's a great Scottish writer who uh, began the Ladies Detective Agency, which is an interesting series of novels as well. Mm. Uh, certainly something that's uh, maybe even worth worth a shout on our show later on, Josh. But yeah. I was also thinking that one was the one I was thinking of in particular. And then there's also the uh, that Australian set one too. I'm forgetting Miss Fisher uh, would be mm-hmm. also one to mm-hmm. look at as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Rankin has said oops, Rankin has said some interesting things on detective fiction and Rebus. Now, I'm quoting from a couple of different interviews he's done with the BBC, both uh, an episode of Desert Island Discs, which you should definitely listen to. It's really, really cool, um, where he doesn't just talk about his music tastes, but, you know, his, his profession and his career and his education, his family. It's quite interesting. And he also sat down at the... Um, Oh, what was the pub? Was it the Oxford pub? I didn't make a note of that. I should have. For a BBC4 radio program called The Book Club, a live recording with uh, with some readers. And so it's quite an interesting one as well. So some of these quotes come from that. And you can find both of those podcasts uh, widely available online. I encourage you to check those out if you're interested. But I, I certainly enjoyed them. Um, he was also Oxford, into punk music uh, as well. He sure was, he, yeah. He dabbled in a lot of things. I, he also even was hired by DC Vertigo. That's sort of like the the dark horror part of DC Comics, like such as you know Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Uh, he actually mm-hmm. did a, a series on John Constantine, the Hellblazer comics, which cool. is all about you know a guy who fights demons and whatnot. So mm-hmm. who's also a very kind of Chandlerian detective figure as well uh, in mm-hmm. his own way. He just fights demons instead of, you know, uh, perps, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but Rankin also wrote for comics as well, which is pretty cool. He seems like an all-around kind of interesting individual. And uh, I like how he portrays humanity in, 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 the, way that he, in the way that he does. He, he's mm-hmm. a keen observer of, of, the human, of the human animal, you know, to quote Desmond Morris. Yeah, yeah, the naked ape. Yeah, good work. That's a good, good quote. Whenever you can get Desmond Morris into a, into a conversation, you're doing well. Thanks, the Learning Channel. <laughs> yeah, 
Right. Well, um, you know, actually, just before I, I say share some of these quotes, um, he was telling an interesting story, actually, Josh, about his research for knots and crosses. And one of the things that he did is he went down to the Lothian Police Department and he asked the chief superintendent, you know, here's what I'm doing. Can I do this? And um, and he's like, yeah, sure. You know, you, you can do this. Um, I'll uh, I'll put you in touch with this detective and that detective go down and talk to them they'll give you some information on on uh, you know the procedural because he didn't know how to write a police procedural anyway so he goes down and he talks to these guys and little did he know that during the time the police were dealing with the disappearance of a girl taken from a pleasure beach and he kind of told them, yeah, I'm writing, this, I'm writing a novel and I'm looking to see how the police work stuff out. Uh, and he gave them the summary of, of Knots and Crosses, which of course involves the abduction of young girls. And these police, though he didn't know it at the time, actually viewed him as a suspect. And he was sitting down there taking notes as they were asking him all these questions, thinking that, hey, okay, I've got, uh, you know, I'm getting an inside look to how the police procedural works and sort of the sorts of questions they ask. And then they're like, well, where were you on the night of June something something? And he's like, Oh well, I can't what? remember. I must I must have been drunk or something, you know? And they, and from that moment they, they considered him as a suspect. And when he went home he wow. said that to his father. His dad said, You stupid Egypt, like, you know, they're they're gonna be looking after you. Anyway, so he went back down and he cleared it all up. I can see his up. dad having some schadenfreude yeah. about that too. Like, I told you to stay yeah. away from this stuff. You know, <laughs> That's you're, right. you're big intellectual <laughs> trying to come in there and, and, and you're just gonna yep. just gonna get yourself in trouble. Of, I, I can just picture I can just picture this scenario like right then and there, yeah. just the conversation. So anyway, that's uh, that's what happened. I mean, obviously it was it was cleared up, but uh, yeah, he was he was considered like here's a guy who's just come and try and like you know maybe did the job um, on this uh, poor girl and is trying to pull the wool over the police playing games with them. When in actual fact he he was oblivious to the, the true disappearance and was just trying to do some research. Anyway, Rankin says a few interesting things here. I thought I'd share with you. He he feels that writers quote and detectives are both voyeurs. Both seek the truth. Both are interested in human nature. He sees Rebus as a typical working-class Scottish male, represents the last of a dying breed. Although, I suppose contemporarily, Rebus was a fairly typical 40s-aged inspector. Only today does he appear to us as kind of an old dog, I think, looking at it back, you know. But in 1985, he was probably, his behavior was quite typical. You know, the blue smoky pubs, the single drinking, that all that sort of stuff is, is probably not out with what you would expect of a police officer at the time. Yeah, if you think about Marlowe, right? I, I, mm-hmm. One thing I, I, I thought about uh, Rebus was that it's he's like Marlowe if he didn't uh, leave the DA's office. You know, like if he, this is what yeah, Marlowe would have yeah. become eventually. Yeah. It's just like this bureaucratic, uh, work, struggling, mm-hmm. working class detective. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, I hadn't. I hadn't thought he'd, to make he'd, that he'd be drinking. He'd be drinking even more, uh, and he would just be like kind of uh, indoctrinated into the system by that mm-hmm. point. All right. Uh, Rankin thought that he was writing a dark psychological Scottish novel in the tradition of Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, He says, I quote, I think the point I was trying to make was that Edinburgh hadn't really changed that much since Stevenson's time. And now, although Jekyll and Hyde, as readers will know, was set in London, it does portray that that Scottish schizophrenia, you know, the the schizophrenia of the city. Getting back to what you were saying, your impressions of the artistic, the enlightened city above ground and then the dark recesses of its horrors below. That sort of idea, you know. And the book, I think, builds on that on that theme intensely. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, this it is does try example. to promote it. Yeah. The, 
the Jekyll and Hyde aspect of Edinburgh is perfect way to describe it. Aye. Well, you know, in terms of in terms of crime novelists and crime writing, um, a bit like Stephen King, I think Rankin believes that this whole genre deserves more critical appreciation and he does shirk at the label bestseller as he's now a bestseller worldwide a bestseller because it is a double-edged sword isn't it we, we spoke about this on our stephen king episode and how posterity will probably regard him with more critical appreciation than contemporary critics would but he sees crime writers very much as quote using the crime novel to investigate contemporary society and the world in which we live with crime fiction, readers don't realize that they're experiencing serious themes because the story is roller coastering along. End quote. And so this makes us, I suppose, and raises the question: uh, you know, serious literature. What even is that? You know, because because your costumery, because your structure and your narrative impulse is quick and fast, does it make it lesser than a Dickensian, you know, character story? The themes are still there. It's just the guise is a bit different. You know. The shop front, the storefront is decorated differently. So that's some interesting things there. Um, Rankin, with, I think the story was Black and Blue, I believe, was the, the eighth novel. The eighth, um, yeah, it was Black and Blue, the eighth Rebus novel. That was one of his biggest in. sellers. That's right. It certainly was, yeah. And uh, he, he remembers it as being one of his most angry and passionate as well. And in one of the interviews, he does go into the personal reasons for that, um, which I would encourage listeners, if they're interested, to to check those podcasts out. Uh, put them in the show notes, but you can get them on the, you know, just do any Ian Rankin search through your, uh, you know, your podcast app, and you'll, you'll find episodes to the BBC website as well. Uh, upon reflection, Rankin knows that he would change things about Rebus if he had known or if he had intended a series would, in, would emerge from, from this first novel. For example, he claims that his past is fine for a, a one-off novel, but a little bit too extraordinary for a series. Like Because you have to keep revisiting that and you have to keep living up to that backstory. You know, the hypnotist father and brother, the, the scarred SAS training, the intensity of that sort of um, flashback and the broken marriage and all of that stuff makes, I guess, Rankin feels now as a little bit... Contrived. A little bit... Yeah, but it's also a crutch that he used in the first that he has to keep revisiting. And, you know, I, I think he said Those he would change building them. blocks exactly, that he yeah. probably struggled to put the first book together with when he was doing mm -hmm. it. He was thinking as a, 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 a like a, a literary student, literature student, That's right, he was yeah. thinking, you know, about, the, about how a novel is constructed uh, first that, you know, the the introduction the rising action the mm -hmm. uh, the middle portion the denouement the climax the denouement like and he had all these pieces to put the story together with and those mm -hmm. were the pieces that he used at that time but i guess because after he continued the character onwards from that point he realized that he felt responsible sure, yeah. to keep the continuity mm -hmm. so he, he he doesn't actually retcon he in fact owns it and doesn't change it down the road which is admirable uh, mm -hmm. But not necessary, but admirable. Aye, yeah. The other thing he said he would change about the uh, the story is the name of the character. He thought Rebus was interesting as a one-off. Rebus mean you know, like sort of a, a picture puzzle, right? Uh, that's that's what a Rebus is. It's a picture puzzle, and but he felt that maybe that was a bit too pretentious for uh, or a series character Call name. Him Jack Enigma. <laughs> Jack Quagmire. In, in, yeah, Inspector Sleuth. Yeah, Inspector Sleuth, yeah. 
Anyway, um, so there's some information on Rankin, and um, yeah, this this book has retroactively, retrospectively sold quite well. But at the time, it, you know, it, he, he wasn't making tons of money from his first three or four novels. Um, Rebus himself became a worldwide phenomenon uh, in publication, at least. TV and, uh, series. Would, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've got all sorts of things now. I was reading uh, that like he was casted twice. First, he was played, and I actually was amazed at this casting because I think he's a fantastic actor. Was uh, John Hanna played him originally, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. is a really good casting fantastic for him. Actor. But then, yep. and he's a Scotsman too. But yeah. then they got Ken Stott uh, down the road to replace mm-hmm. him. I guess maybe for an older version of him. And I like I... Ken Stott as well. He's very good. But like compared to Hanna, though, like. Hannah, to me, like is one of the best things about that series, Spartacus, because he was just <laughs> so compelling <laughs> in that series in, in his role, and he can play any genre. He's and a great he looks actor. like you know you think of John Hannah popularly, like he is Rachel Weisz's brother in the Mummy, the the, the drunken jo- Jonathan character. <laughs> you know, like just he's like a fool, but he's actually he go on to different levels. And when I heard that he was casted as Rebus, it makes me want to go back and maybe check out some of those episodes and, and see how Absolutely, he does. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this much. I have seen a couple of them. He's a bit more compelling than Derek Jacobi, but the pace and the atmosphere of the shows is maybe not procedural. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a little, uh, it's a little unfair comparison, but that's fresh in our minds anyway. But another thing, Josh, that's fresh in our minds, and we'll use this to bridge into our discussion of the pipes, is whether or not Rankin succeeds where Ellis Peters, with Cadfell, failed, and gives us a backstory that is recurring in this story. And mm-hmm. by, by, which, by which we mean we learned all about Cadfell's exploits through flashback at the beginning of the story in the Crusades, but they never came back to do anything. Does Rankin do a better job with the SAS training here that seems to have scarred his character Rebus. Well, well, we will see. Um, for for this episode, I'm taking the lead with the plot summary, so you can sit back and relax. And uh, everybody, we, we hope you enjoy it. this. Here we go. This is uh, just a, a brief summary of Ian Rankin's Knots and Crosses, and we'll get you on the other side to do our pipes. Enjoy. Break on through to the other side. John Rebus, detective inspector with the Edinburgh Police, isn't exactly washed up as his debut novel opens, but the water is pretty well up to his knees. Scarred by his SAS training and a failed marriage, Rebus has already suffered one breakdown and trundles through his workload with only the false confidence of cigarettes, booze, and occasional trysts to keep him company. Apart from these vices, His daughter, Samantha, seems to be his only joy in life, really. That is, if you discount stacks of half-finished books and peanut butter toast next to his bed, we sense another breakdown is looming. Well, maybe that's a little harsh. He's a roughened character, but fully aware of his soft spots, as conveyed in the opening frames, visiting his father's grave on the anniversary of his death. We meet him here, and follow him to visit his brother Michael, who lives in Fife, and has followed his father's performing ways as a stage hypnotist. Mickey seems to be doing all right with the trade, fancy new car and all that. Well, we soon discover that a side of drugs running helps supplement that salary and keeps him riding in BMWs. Things are fractured in Rebus's family, but he knows enough and feels enough to keep in orbit of his younger brother, Michael. He also has work ethic and a sense of humor that has helped to build a reputation and attract others to him in his profession. 
Rebus is no Philip Marlowe, in case you were wondering, but you don't move very far into the text before evidence of his laconic and traditional charms bubbles off the page. Rankin characterizes him well. Anyway, back to the story. Edinburgh is experiencing dark days. Young girls are being strangled, and there seems to be very little motive to discern. The killings aren't of a sexual nature, but they are consistent enough for Rebus's superiors to be shouting for a profile. Rebus hasn't yet been put on the case, but he knows it's coming, in some way. His boss, William Anderson, puts him onto paperwork, sifting through the back catalogue of sex offenders and likely suspects in the dungeon of the station. He's paired with Jack Morton for this drudgery of work, a colleague who doesn't get enough time on page, in my opinion. A happier version of Rebus, it seems, and one of the few detectives on the force for whom Rebus shows respect. Oh, sorry, I neglected to mention, didn't I, that Rebus has been receiving crank letters through the post? Someone leaving him little matchstick crosses and strung knots alongside shortened missives like, There are clues everywhere, and for those who read between the lines. Well, Morton, for one, knows about these notes, as do some other colleagues at the force, but they only think to use the curio as banter fodder in winding Rebus up. Though it's difficult to believe, only the reader, that's us, and the soon-appearing press liaison officer, Jill Templer, make the connection between the killings and Rebus's past. We, because we're shown the killer's hand in the opening vignette, and Jill, because, well, because all of the other characters seem too busy drinking and smoking and dwelling in self-absorbing haze to make the connection. Without giving away too much too early, I found this plot convenience more than a little unbelievable, but I digress. Rebus has a secret admirer, or teaser, or murderer, whatever you like. But he's too thick to think that these strange notes connect to the murders. Yeah, a smart DI with a secretive past who brushes off crank letters from mysterious sender during a time of great fear in Edinburgh. Oh, and did I mention his daughter Samantha was also a young girl, 12, but going on 21? Rankin telegraphs the story's arc with transparency here in the early stages, and it does smell a little like a first novel, a breeding ground for character and ideas and style. And there's nothing wrong with this, by the way. It is a first novel, but with inconsistencies like this propelling the first act, we really should call a spade a spade. Knots and Crosses isn't the most subtle of books. I agree with the killer. There are clues everywhere. At least in terms of plot. But let's continue. As Old Riki, or Edinburgh, wrestles gloomily in this killer's grip, journalist Jim Stevens offers subplot intrigue for readers with his own investigation into Clan Rebus, particularly Michael's drug involvement. Now Stevens thinks he's onto a story that could blow open police headquarters and raise his stock significantly. Hungry for a link between Michael and Detective Inspector John, Stevens works in brief squibs throughout the story, in and out of seedy pubs and even seedier conversations with memorable characters like Big Podine, an ex-merchant sailor, in an effort to try to hang the noose around the brothers. Ultimately, we know Rebus is innocent and that Stephen's largest threat is breaking up John's new-forming relationship with Jill, one of his old flames. But there's some merit to this underscore. Just as the killer lurks and waits for his time to strike, 
So too does Stevens' presence in the story meander under the radar and threaten to strike. As it turns out, Jim Stevens, like his game, is just a bit overreaching. He's right about Michael, but nowhere near right about John. We learn only little bits about John's special ops training in the first half of the book, and his resulting PTSD which haunts him from intimacy during at least two sexual encounters, and, more presumably, joy in his once marriage with English teacher Rona. The confinement, the darkness, the presence and pressure of his fellow trainee, and despite being glimpses, these moments are enough for most readers to guess who the perpetrator is, orchestrating these ghastly abductions. We are frustratingly ahead of John on this score, just like we are with the anonymous letters, but a chance phone call from a professor, Iser, at the University of Edinburgh, helps Rebus put together the acrostic clues that have been building in the names of the victims since the beginning. Sandra Adams, Mary Andrews, Nicola Turner, Helen Abbott, Samantha. It's all been leading up to John's daughter. She hangs out at the library, what one would think is a pretty safe place for a 12-year-old to hang out in the late 80s or early 90s, especially with an English teacher for a mum. But no, because Gordon Reeve works there. Well, he's Ian Knott, actually. A necessary name change since his days as a soldier with John. But I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? We might know that Gordon is the killer, but John still has no clue. All he knows is that his daughter is the next target. So he speeds to his wife's home with his partner, Jack Morton, and discovers that two police cars have beaten him to the scene. We know he's too late, and finally, at long last, after playing catch-up with us, Rebus knows it too. And at this stage of the story, chapter 19, the reader and the protagonist are finally put onto the same page. Consequently, the story picks up a pace here, and tension arrives, and it does hang around for a while, palpably so. As for the fallout, Samantha has been predictably abducted from the house. His ex-wife, Rona, was bludgeoned by Reeve and left for dead, but brought into hospital still very much alive. Her poet boyfriend, however, Andy Anderson, who conveniently happens to be the son of Rebus's boss, has been killed. So the story now becomes a chase, a matter of time, urgency. How long will Reeve wait for Rebus to find him before killing Samantha? And what if Rebus, who remains pretty clueless, can't shift the dust from his mind attic to help his conscious self recognize who the perpetrator from his past is? Well, good thing he has a hypnotist brother, wouldn't you say? Yep, just like that, Michael and Jill team up and visit Rebus's apartment to look after him following his return home from the hospital in the wake of Samantha's abduction. Accepting that his locked mind could very likely hold the answers that he and the rest of the Force seek. Rebus encourages the hypnosis that brings us into the novel's penultimate section, entitled The Cross. This brief but intense prose section is Rebus's exhumation of his past. Prompted by his brother's question, Why did you leave the army, John? Rebus gives Michael, Jill, and ourselves access to his story a compelling narrative detailing his insecurity and familial regret, all pinioned to a centerpiece of special ops training and a story of faux betrayal which Gordon Reeve would no doubt have been personally reeling from. 
Leaving Michael behind, John and Jill bring the newly uncovered lead to Chief Superintendent Wallace, who thanks them for the information and orders all parties off of the case, apart from Jill, whose new press job is to ensure that the media doesn't catch wind of just how incestuous, his word, not mine, this matter has become. Rebus and Jill, Rebus and Michael, Anderson Jr. and Rebus's ex-wife, Reeve and Rebus. It's not hard to see why he tries to kibosh any further involvement. But this is a protagonist's adventure, after all, and police procedure isn't going to fix things as quickly as a vengeful father turned vigilante would. While Rebus is on the lam, scouring the city for inspiration and clues, Jill waits at his apartment and ruminates. As her thoughts stew, she tries to generate a geographical likeness between the victims and their movements, and finally settles on the library, where all of the young girls were known to frequent. Coupled with the vague notice of an APB for a blue escort that had been earlier dismissed, Jill leans towards considering the library more seriously. She's kept from that, however, as the phone rings. It is, of course, Reeve himself, looking for Rebus, but quite happy to sneer and threaten down the line to D.I. Templar as well. He's got Samantha, and he will kill her tonight. Rebus returns, despondent, to his flat, and Jill tells him about the phone call. She also tells him of her hunch about the library. He rushes across the city towards the gothic facade of the library, hoping that Reeve might be an employee or a volunteer or something there. At this point, he's grasping at any straws he can. Rebus grills the main desk security man until he hands over his yellow clipboard full of staff contacts. And there it is, for those willing to read between the lines. Ian Knott, part-time staff in the children's section. So. Reeve had made a name for himself as a children's librarian after his shame in service and played the long game, an extremely long game, at getting revenge on his deserting partner. From here, the story moves fiercely quick. Rebus confronts Reeve, demanding Samantha. Reeve plays for time, enjoys himself, proffering drug intel on Michael. Reeve is sickly playful, presents a copy of Crime and Punishment, and draws from the book a gun. Rebus jumps Reeve, breaking his nose but not without getting shot in the shoulder. William Anderson then bursts in. He and Rebus pursue Reeve further down into the old building's bowels. Anderson gets kicked to the wall in the basement corridor and a fight between the two old soldiers ensues. Reeve kicks Rebus in the face, hops on and begins to strangle him, but John pulls a gun from his pocket and ends Reeve and his gruesome course of murders. As epilogue to this rushing climax, Rankin offers readers a speedy two-page denouement. Samantha is saved from Knott's apartment, Jim Reeves receives silage enough for a week of stories. Even though he'd been wrong about Rebus's involvement, his brother Michael would see time behind bars. And though much of the novel portrays Stevens as a bit of a vulture, He's seen here to have some dignity at the end of the story, as he parlays ethical blows with the London media who have come swooping in to buy Samantha's story. He feels a malaise and has come to view his city, this tourist trap of old and new, through a far darker lens after all of this reeve business. Wisps of Jekyll and Hyde still haunt the streets of Edinburgh, while Rebus, and presumably Jill, recover somewhere 
within the city center. All right, a uh, succinct summary there, my friend, once again. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah. I like your mix yeah. of plot summary and also you got a bit of critical jabs in there as well. Um, some that I Just share with you and some <laughs> some that I may or may not, but we'll see. We, um, we shall. It's so, time. so it's time for us to light the pipes, or in this case, the many, many cigarettes. And I'm not even <laughs> counting how many I'm lighting right now, just like our friend Rebus. That's right. You lose track after. Exactly. You lose track indeed. So let's light our, so let's, uh, light our cigarettes up there. Um, I don't know what they would be smoking. What do you think Rebus smoked? It never really described what cigarettes he was. Uh, I don't know. No product I don't, I don't think. Uh, yet at this time. No, I don't. I don't think that he did. Did he? You know, Rankin is. Uh, he, he's not. He's just, not just, um, privileged to a brand. Just a pack. Forgive the term of fake, uh-huh. basically. Absolutely, yeah. Pack of fags, yeah. So, Josh, principles. So said, how do you feel about Rebus? Yeah. Hmm. Principles. So, for those playing the home game, princip- uh, pipes is principles, investigation, perpetrators, environs, and uh, environs and supporting characters or supporting cast. We, we rate each one of these out of five, and that gives us a final score. Let's uh, smoke them up. Okay, buddy. Tell me what you think of John Rebus. Yeah, Sergeant Detective John Rebus of the Edinburgh Police. He seems more of a plainclothesman than a brilliant sleuth. Although there are, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, hints of his, his own brilliance. Uh, he gets his man, so he has his reputation on whatever people think of him. Like, for example, Superintendent Anderson uh, respects him in, mm-hmm. you know, in his own way, but he tolerates him as well. Uh, tolerates we're not really is a good any- word, yeah. Tolerates, yeah. We're not given any insight into his investigative abilities. The case is directly linked to his own personal background. The narrative is determined by his interrelationships with others. It's clear that Rankin is more interested in the institutions and the psychology of his characters than their detective acumen. Uh, this personal touch is kind of reminiscent, as I mentioned earlier, like Raymond Chandler's Marlowe. But the case, however, is cracked when Rebus delves into his subconscious via hypnotism, as opposed to a Sherlockian or Poirot-esque drawing room gotcha moment. So mm-hmm, it's a thematic mm-hmm. choice on Rankin's part, I think deliberate for sure. Uh, he drinks, another nod to Marlowe. Uh, only difference, as I said, is if he stayed in the DA's office and he's Scottish living in the Thatcher era. <laughs> uh, he's, a, he's a very human portrait. Uh, that's what I did like about him. Uh, troubled man. He's a drinker. Uh, he has a father, a uh, very strained relationship with his with his de- late father and his brother. Uh, he's dedicated to his job and he's a slave to the bureaucracy. He's just a cog in the machine. And through him, we see perspective of other characters like Gil Templer, Jim Stevens, the reporter, uh, how, you know, just how they report the politics, the police work, and the media in this story. Uh, he's reflective of that. He's a he's a cog in that great machine, that great mm-hmm. game. Yeah. Uh, he kind of reminded me, as I mentioned earlier, of of uh, the series The Wire, uh, because the principle feels second to the overall narrative itself, and which is disappointing a little bit to me because I prefer the detective centric stories. Uh-huh. But but that is a good comparison. For example. Yeah, because Rebus to me is a lot like Dominic West's Jimmy McNulty on The Wire. He's this cop who thinks he's there. He's a crusader cop who's going to be good police and, uh, you know, and 
and make sure justice is served despite all the bureaucracy that surrounds him and the corruption that surrounds him. But in the end, he's just a pawn in the great game. And it's, this is and this is another great game that, to me, that um, Rankin is introducing here. He's a complex, intriguing character that's teased in this book, but we only get a glimpse. So overall, I find him compelling. I like a detective who's a team player because he definitely, there is teamwork in this story for sure, mm -hmm. but he's not the most intriguing character in the novel, in my opinion. And I think that diminishes him, him, as, a, him as a principal in the way that we've been, I guess, the criteria that we've been using to review principles in this story. So overall, I see some potential in his character over development. I understand that he's supposed to be one. He's not supposed to be the main character of this story. To me, I feel that Rankin was not trying to write like a detective-centric thriller. I think he wanted to write a crime epic set in Edinburgh, and he wanted to do sort of that that wide, I guess, scope kind of wire-esque kind of story, very Dickensian story mm -hmm. in this book. And so I, I don't think he was focusing on Rebus as like his main protagonist, so to speak, uh, as we would think of other detective stories. But that's so a good point, Josh. At, yeah. At, yeah. And I just, I, I want to just reiterate what he himself, the writer said about thinking at the time that he wasn't writing a crime story, never intended to write a series, but instead was writing a Scottish literature story, a more modernized version of a Jekyll and Hyde cityscape sort of broad, as you say, this sort of wide view of things. And he told a story, which I think fits beautifully in with what you're saying, because when the book was first released, um, he remembers going to bookstores and seeing it in the crime section and just kind of quietly moving it to the Scottish literature section, because that's where he felt it belonged, <laughs> almost Thanks. like in resistance to where they were trying to trying to frame him, you know. But anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you. You were cool. talking about, again, it diminishing the character because he wasn't the most compelling yeah, so in terms of marking him as a principal, yeah. I give him as a whole three and a half. Okay, right. Yeah, all right. Uh, but now, but now that I know more that this was intended to be like a one a one stop novel, it makes a lot more sense that he would come off this way and to, to view him as a principal in this fashion. Uh, I would say, like, if I were to reconsider that, maybe a. I would put him more as a supporting character, and really the principles is kind of non-existent here, if, if you think about it, because Gill and uh, even Stevens, to an extent, do more detective work than Rebus does in here. It, it takes uh, hypnotism for Rebus to solve the problem, to solve the case, um, and that to me is a thematic choice, and uh, mm -hmm. we can explore that yeah. later on when we get into the perpetrator. Yeah, it is interesting, but I, I, I struggle to to agree with that point that. Okay, you don't find him the most compelling. Then, as a principal, who is? Or are you trying to argue that there is no principal? Instead, we have we have an ensemble. Yeah, here. there really is no principal. It's like an ensemble to me. It's Dickensian. I okay. told you I would use that word more than once. Right. Well, I feel as though he is very. I much just found the character was a slave to the narrative. That's okay. kind of how I felt. I didn't feel like he had any agency. Right. I I don't disagree. Maybe with that's that. the point. I, yeah. Well, I I don't disagree with that. Um, but. I do see him as the principal. I see him as the principal quite clearly. I agree that he is a slave to the narrative, but that doesn't mean that I don't think he has agency. He does ultimately make the decision to trust his brother's craft and to go under. Um, but you could argue then that, that, that Michael is uh, is more responsible for for kind of uh, you know unlocking the secrets in his in his brother's brain, and you know. 
on on that wavelength, I can't help but feel that maybe Mickey's help uh, should reduce his sentence, which no doubt he he comes to serve for his drug dealing, <laughs> because ultimately he he helped bring this crime to crime to this uh, this streak of crimes to an end. But getting back getting back to the point, circling back around, you don't see him so much as a principal. I do see him as a principal, uh, like Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye. He's a principal. Uh, Holden Caulfield doesn't do anything in that story either, but things happen to him and things happen through his gaze and through his impressions, and he becomes a victim. So the, the agency is in his recognizing that he does have power, but he has to trust people around him to gain it, and he has to kind of bridge a relationship that's broken. I see him having some agency in here. My mark, by the way, was exactly the same. I went three, three and a half for Rebus as well. Um, but I did view him as a principal. So I think we're coming at it from different perspectives. Too, but I, I viewed him as a principal in a different way. And he wasn't the kind of principal that I had in mind for the role. I wanted someone a bit more with a bit more agency. Um, I understand what, what, what Rankin was trying to do now that I know that it was a one-off first novel that it was intended to be not so much as a detective like lock room kind of mystery story, but more of like a crime epics, so to speak, something like like Elroy would have done, which is interesting yeah. that Elroy commented on Rankin because they have a similar sense of style too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I found I found um, I, I found Rebus oafish at times, bumbling. He is a good man, we know and we sense that, but he is a pretty poor detective, at least in this one. Um, the the now, best Morton decision seems to be the better detective to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The better, the best thing he Dedicated. does is. Is he is, but he's not without his own vices, is he? Um, <laughs> no, he's more reactionary, Josh, as a principal than investigatory, and that does limit certainly how interesting he could be on the page. And I think maybe that's where I would agree with you. His reactions are the things that drive him less than his his hmm hunches and hmm we should do that yeah. and his drive. He doesn't have a lot of drive. He's a reactionary principal character. If we don't like the grizzled, hardened, haunted men, which, by the way, you asked me at the outset of our episode, that's kind of Scotland all over, you know, the grizzled, hardened, haunted mm-hmm. men. If we don't like that, then there's probably not a like to a lot to like about Rebus. He is soft and he is charming, as I outlined in my plot summary briefly. He does have the skill to survive in those sort of more cushioned worlds, but he is a hardened figure. Um we know he's a broken man. He likes his jazz, which hints at his softness and his artistry, even though I believe he comes to like rock music in the later stories, as Rankin writes more of himself into the stories and the character. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I liked him. He was okay. He was, he was more than passable. So I went three and a half as well. We haven't seen him at Good. his best yet. I don't think this is anywhere no. near a fully, you know, a fully revealed and, and expressed an presentation. Yes, it is more of an introduction. We don't have a fully presented but it, pair character. But it's telegraphed as an introduction. It's not like it's not disappointing in the sense where like I have a feeling that like it's weird because it feels like he's introducing a teasing a, a character that will that he plans to work on book after book after book. But really, that wasn't the case here. It wasn't but compared that. to say like Cadfil and Falco, uh, mm. there's this week we get teases of who they are, and we know they're going to stretch out their story and reveal things. You know. you know to kind of take us along this one feels like it's going to do the same thing but to me they've done enough to make me sort of want to take along and find out more about him Mm because i also want to see why he's such a good detective i want to Mm -hmm. feel that in the story i don't want his brother to solve a case via hypnotism you know and while i do like gil templer having agency in the story despite her position in the police office in the police um in in the detective bureau jill jill yeah yeah, gil or jill what have you i always get confused with like jillian and gillian uh i think i think it's just yeah for sure i think it's just the spelling 
Because then you have like Gillian Anderson, and mm-hmm. then you also have like the actress on Community, Gillian Jacobs. Mm-hmm. So, and they spelled the exact same way. So there has to be some sort of like I don't know. Uh, so I'll just say Jill because that, yeah. that we'll, we'll move forward. We'll call her Jill. Call Gill Jill. sounds like a guy's name. Yeah, if it you does. think about it. Yeah, it does. Um, well, yeah. Okay. So overall, I liked Rebus. I found him interesting, mm-hmm. but as a detective character, he was a little bit of disappointment for me in that way. Yeah, I but would agree. Re- rethinking agree. it now, knowing that this was his first novel and not intended to be like uh, the next uh, a series mm-hmm. uh, it makes a lot more sense about his character now and, and how it's portrayed so i'm three and a half to a four but mm-hmm. i'm going to stay with my three and a half yeah me too let's talk investigation did you like the plot did you like the pacing did you like the writing style what um, what did you go for here pal okay the plot so it's a multi-layered story it mm-hmm. smoothly introduces and weaves another character arcs into the story so the world building in this story is really solid yeah. The first two thirds, I think, flow very well. There are no lulls in the narrative, in my opinion. Uh, the urgency of the kidnappings and the murders are omnipresent in the first two thirds. It's a tad predictable, though, in a structure, but it's a tight story up until the final third, where we get rushed to this reveal of the killer, mm-hmm. despite you know this, them seeding the story with flashbacks that build up to the revelation. The story, it reaches this emotional, if forced, crescendo with the hypnotism, and then you get a throwaway climax where Reeve is dead, apparently killed by Michael. Uh, sorry, ap- apparently killed. Where Reeve is dead. Where Reeve is dead. Sammy is rescued, and mm-hmm. Stevens finds his soul. Like mm-hmm. there was no emotional <laughs> aftermath of Rebus with his ex-wife or with Gil. That's with right. Gil. Yeah. Uh, the book a lot of falls questions. flat on its face. It falls flat on its face, despite having some good character writing, skillful weaving of those character arcs. Mm. I like the use, uh, the writing I think is strong in this story though, like in terms of the description and the world that that uh, Rankin is building. I like the use of Edinburgh's postcard imagery with that dark underbelly I've been talking about. The idea of a real world and the subconscious that has shadows and secrets that we choose to deny. And if these demons are not exercised, they'll come up to the surface and materialize mm-hmm. re yeah. Gordon Reeve. Yeah. So yeah. That yeah, comes that's clear. kind of... I think the writing is really strong in this story. I think narratively, it definitely has some flaws. But to me, I'll be a, maybe a bit generous. You might agree, you might not. Mm-hmm, but I'm mm-hmm. going to give it four for the writing alone. But mm-hmm. outside of that, the narrative is like a three to a three and a half. Okay. Well, I was at a four as well with this one. I I had a real problem with, as I think I probably made clear in that plot summary, I was I was quite frustrated with just how telegraphed i think these clues were you know that the the killer reeve says there are clues everywhere always says that like in sherlock holmes stories for example or even other stories that that we've done wherein like the marlowe stories for example like we're talking about the lady in the lake and how there wasn't enough clues for you that it was very confusing and convoluted Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but in this story here it's almost like a little insulting it is yes yeah there's too many in some ways how these were telegraphed yeah, we are waiting for the characters to catch up with what we already know. And that makes it dull. If not for the fact, it would make it dull. If not for the fact that the writing is, as you say, it's really nice. And there are some deliberate artistic touches here that bring Edinburgh to life. I don't think, uh, while I'm on this point, that Edinburgh ever becomes the the, the sort of 
a character that others have said it does in this story. I, I don't think it comes to life quite that vividly, but there are certainly nice Not moments. Not yet, anyways. Not yet, at least. That's right. But it, it does deserve attention, and it it gets attention, and it does become a minor player in the story. The backdrop does have um, real dimension, and I like that. And I think that works into the investigation quite well, because the thematics depend on that sort of dichotomy, you know, of of, yes. of sort of grizzled underbelly, um, secretive, shameful past, and kind of refinement on top. And there is that to Rebus's character, certainly, and to Reeves' character and his motivations. The investigation is, as you say, not with any lulls, really. There's no slow bits to the story that make you feel like, as with our most recent big read, um, Ellis Peters' A Morbid Taste for Bones, I was feeling stuck in this place, like, oh, move from this, please. I don't need to hear another sit-down 10 pages over a cup of mead about how you don't like what he did to you and he didn't like that, what you were, you know, trying to do, bribing it from the church and all of this stuff. I just felt that was slow. There was, there's none of that in this. It is more fast paced, but I don't think the story suffers for that. I don't think, because as you say, you know, we've, we've got a real network of interesting supporting characters. And at the end, the great disappointment is that we don't have resolution for a lot of these strands they're just sort of hanging in the air like does rona even leave the hospital we don't even know you know there are problems with that and maybe four is a bit generous but because the man maybe four is a bit generous as i hear myself talk it is it, it is generous but so where's that goodwill you know, coming from where's that goodwill coming from uh it's the power of the uh, I, I think, think you're right Rankin i think has you're a great right. capture of character it's almost hemingway-esque or even chandler-esque chandler how perhaps, he descri- yeah. his description there's just a muscular power to mm-hmm. his writing like he mm-hmm. can say something so simple but also evoke so many emotions from mm-hmm. from his writing and how people react to their environs in the story and to the situations that are involved mm-hmm. and he carries through these threads quite well up until he leaves them dangling mm-hmm. and it seems deliberate on his part as an author so i can appreciate the architecture of how he puts the story together yeah okay good good so i think we're kind of saying the same thing here we, we are aware of being in the presence of a really talented writer but that writer yeah, has yet a, to harness a, a nascent yes mastermind yeah. of writing yeah but it is yet to really um kind of rein in the narrative skill well he'll have plenty of practice for that yeah sure sure will Okay, Josh. Um, so we're so far stroke for stroke. Um, what about Reeve, the perpetrator of the story here? Oof. And I guess so, to a lesser degree, Jim Stevens is a bit of a perpetrator at the outset. But where did you go here with Reeve? Uh, I I can see Stevens as a perpetrator the same way you know in the previous episode I talked about you know prior Robert being one, but in the yeah, end he yeah. ends up in the supporting characters for obvious he, reasons. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Reeve, uh, he's a third act reveal. We only get glimpses and flashbacks arbitrarily left as breadcrumbs by Rankin. The way he appears in the flashback to me is a 180 from the Thomas Harris villain we get in the climax. <laughs> yeah. Like we're missing a piece of his journey to get where he is at present, like strangling girls. Like I just don't see how he goes from that to that. And also I'm not a fan of the demonization of the LG, you know, BQ, like, it's uh again it's not like Harris was notorious for that too. I mean yes. like, like Buffalo yep. Bill and the Science yep. of the Lambs and stuff like that. Oh, and that's a trend that's carried and that's the stuff that's carried on, you know, further and further. I understand why the Hannibal series decided to, you know, eschew that particular storyline 
from uh, from like the uh, mm-hmm. adaptation from, from that adaptation. Yeah. That's a good um, point, actually. Plus, they couldn't plus they couldn't get the rights. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, how does you know how does a pitiful sympathetic character that we meet become this cookie cutter baddie? Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave him a two. Mm-hmm. Dude, I didn't give him a two. I I did pass him, but I think that was on okay. the credit and generosity of the backstory because you're right. He is kind of lame and you're more interested in, you know, watching Rebus react to what happens than when, when you Stevens. get that scene or Stevens. Yeah. His long game is underdeveloped, isn't it? Like, I mean, has, has he, has this really all been because he felt betrayed when he and ashamed of having come on sexually to him was it is it just not being able to get over that sort of well i wanted a kiss from you yeah like like is it's he really like, envious of, i don't get the murder of the children i don't get yeah, the murder it of doesn't, the girls. it doesn't, it doesn't make, make sense make, yeah. no it, it it doesn't make any sense at why all. would but that then upset again, rebus yeah like, he, he must have been already not wired correctly even before that happened yeah uh, you're right, though. And maybe that, maybe that's one of the main reasons why he got into the SAS was because he was of that mindset, like a lot of people are mm-hmm. going into the military these days. Where not all of them are. I'm not saying that. I mean, I, I support all our, our soldiers. You know, we serve the country and everything like that. But there are people who go there. Who, there, there are some people there who join up because they don't have any other options, or 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 B, you know. They want to shoot people, yep. and maybe Reeve was one of those people. But then he he also could have been a suppressed homosexual, and maybe that was that kind of came out with his exposure to. Uh, yeah, it's odd, isn't it? But then we're in that playground, not a playground per se, but that sort of litter box, mm-hmm. really, if you think about it, of you know the demonization of homosexuals uh, in yep. this particular story that's prevalent in these in, in serial killer gothic yeah. horror. Yeah, that occurs. So. It's a terrible trope, and I'm sad to see it here. It didn't need to be in here. I'm pleased that it didn't filter too much into the investigation, but instead into the reveal, because that allowed me to credit the investigation more than what what he's doing here with the character. I went two and a half for Reeve because I think there's there, there's interesting fertile ground with him, but I didn't understand and would have liked more explanation or justification for why he thought this long game was worth playing. You know, when the professor calls, it's it, it's kind of gimmicky, we'll like, know. oh, the uh, acrostic nature of the victim's names and things like that. But has it really been because he said no to having love or sexual relations with him while they were incarcerated together during the training? Is he really, re- does he feel rejection and envy or jealousy over over Rebus's job and his success in life? Because I'm looking at Rebus's life and I'm thinking, I wouldn't want it. <laughs> like, I wouldn't no. want it. So He was happy that he had a nervous breakdown after he got out yeah. of the SES. He was happy to hear that. That's, but then he saw that he weird. got married and had a kid. I guess that's he it. He assumed that Rebus had everything all peachy keen. Yeah. But he didn't know that Rebus was probably like, uh, well, he yeah. probably had an idea, but... Rebus was definitely pursuing his own demons from his family was, uh, in yeah. terms of and Reeve as well because this haunted his subconscious it's haunted his nightmares it, it's it's basically also kind of messed him up sexually yeah. as well totally so, it has yeah you know uh, so there's uh, many different uh, effects of that mm-hmm. incarceration that maybe Reeve was, wasn't really understanding of how much he was already suffering but again I just can't account that dramatic jump from I can see him trying to make Reeve's life miserable. Mm-hmm. I can see him sure. maybe killing people in Reeve's lives arbitrarily. But but the focusing on the children and stuff like that, like maybe they thought it was a way for he thought it was a way by going after the girls was to get every get everyone's attention, and maybe that's the reason why he decided to to, to do that. But 
yeah, I'm a bit flummoxed by it as well. Okay, buddy. So I went, I went two and a half. You went two. Um, we're saying the same things here. Uh, what, what about the environs? I'm guessing from you this was a strong uh, score? Four and a half. World building, wow. as I mentioned. Wow. Just the feeling of banality with the grim urgency of the investigation. I thought that really captured that. Uh, the, the pathetic fallacy with the drizzle and overcast skies over the yep. picturesque Edinburgh. Yep. Just capture the whole grim situation. Um, that was, yeah, the environs and the next category to me are, like, are, are definitely one of the strongest marks uh, uh, for this particular novel. Okay, great. I thought so, so too. We kind of talked I about went, the environs. We did. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say we, we talked about the environs already in the mm-hmm. uh, investigation, but what's your take on that? Well, I, I went for a four. I, 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 okay. I feel the same way you do about the city. It is a character. It's not as big a character as some people have said yet. I believe Edinburgh will grow in this series to become a little bit more uh, interesting, but it worked for this particular story. And I do get the vibe, the Jekyll and Hyde, the sort of schizophrenic stuff as we've already talked about. I don't think it's overplayed, but it's definitely played in the environment. And there is some nice pathetic fallacy in here, as you say. There's, there's some nice personification. There, there's good writing in here of the environment. One thing I would like to have seen maybe a little more of is decoration of interior spaces. You know, I mean, uh, we, we get very generic yes. look at pubs, smoky blue, and, you know, the, the patrons within them, uh, like Big Podine. Bland you know, apartments. Yeah. Bland apartments, yeah. And we know that Edinburgh Books is famous everywhere. for its, its architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Could be a Books bit everywhere, more. the pilot light in the apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, this very institutional in both the re- in both in the private spaces and yeah. in the in the public spaces. Aye. And maybe that's what he wanted to show was kind of like just the under the I guess the gloss of Edinburgh, the city that we know. There's this yes. very bland sort of uh, institutionalized uh, infrastructure underneath it all, and that's a Aye. it's a very corrupt and uh nepotistic uh infrastructure as well um well let's let's finish off then josh with our secondary supporting characters i'll go quite quickly through this i think knots and crosses has a lot to offer readers in terms of secondary characters and it does feel like a setup for further development particularly the character of jim stevens and although his resolution is quite pat as he goes from kind of this sort of uh i wouldn't call him nihilistic but he's certainly embittered and he has these problems he wants to kind of he wants to snare both brothers and some sort of a big story if he can sell it and he does get his fodder for stories but he does have a more moral pat ending a moralistic up yes. in a upright standing sort of thing and i like that at the end it is interesting and it makes me feel warmer towards stevens that there's a heart in there that that isn't all looking to to grind out the grist of people's failures you know yeah the resolution of his arc was very satisfying it went against expectation mm, it did, like yeah. it accepts yeah like you know like even though he obviously considers rebus a romantic rival he was able to put that beside beside and when he realized that oh my god rebus has no clue about what his brother is doing That's i right. got this yeah. guy all wrong and but it makes sense based on his biases that you know before it's that whole thing about the it's the theme of going down beneath like mm-hmm. he's seeing the mm-hmm. surface of what he wants to see yeah. but then once he actually is confronted with the truth and he goes deeper and he takes a risk to do it as well then he realizes that you know that there's something much more t- there's much much more going on and he's willing to admit that and uh he still manages to hang on to his soul which was really mm-hmm. interesting and uh, I l- really liked his arc. He came out as he came out to me as actually a very. Uh, he he ended up coming up as one of my favorite supporting characters. Actually, cool. Yeah, 
Um, Despite how uh, annoying I kind of found him just prior to that when he confronts Michael mm-hmm, in the apartment. Yeah. Like, it was a desperate gamble that he did that he could have got caught, but I admired yes, his moxie for, for sure. it. And it showed that he does have a moral backbone that he wants to... It might have been, you know, as I said, impeded by his own feelings towards uh, Gil, but he was also in love with the story and his own ambition, but he also did the right thing in the end. So, yeah. bravo to him. Indeed. Um, speaking of Jill, I like Jill. I thought that Jill Templer was an interesting character. She She's worked into the story naturally. She's not sort of just an interest that appears. She's there anyway. And yeah. it's, it's cool. She emerges as a natural sort of counterplay. Uh, Rona, the ex-wife, Andy, her her, her uh, boyfriend, you know, the convenience of Andy being uh, Rebus's boss's son, we think that's going to have more of, of an impact. And it really doesn't. Unfortunately, he becomes a victim. I felt that was a bit unnecessary complicating things. I didn't think it needed to go in there. Anderson didn't need to have no. a victim son. Like it, it seemed a bit odd, but you know, I, I can see that relationship emerging. The thing, you know, the English teacher and the poet. I guess it's quite forced. Yeah, know. yeah. It kind of made like as uh, Wallace says. You know, it is very incestuous. Uh, some of the relationships yeah, totally, in the story yeah, uh, to yeah. the plot. For sure. <laughs> I wonder. I like how Michael had his own kind of arc of redemption. He never, he realized through the hypnotism because he dug down beneath and he saw what was under his brother's core yeah. besides what he yeah. thought was the person who was rejecting him and his way of life and his father. Mm-hmm. He now realized that his brother suffered because of that relationship. And he, and, and that also led to him also having his own redemption. That's with, right. You know, yeah. probably going to, going to jail. Now, I don't know what's going to happen to him in future books. Like, does he yeah. become a hardened criminal because of his experiences <laughs> in jail? No. Or does he come out who and knows, become like yeah. a pastor or something like that? Like, who knows? But I think I think he deserves a lesser sentence, as I said already, I think, because he helped, he helped it's kind bring of like baby to the end. Yeah, it's not quite like, you know, the ending of Baby Driver, where, like, he helped, you know, <laughs> save all these, all these, all these people, yeah. be, you know, before quite, he gets no. busted at, at the end, right? But it's kind of similar to that a little bit. Well, I can um, see where you're as for, as for, as for Jill, you know... You know, we first see her through Rebus's eyes, and that's kind of, there's a bit of a male gaze toward in that oh, situation. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. But, but, but it easily develops uh, throughout the book. Mm-hmm. We watch mm-hmm. her gradually bond with Rebus despite her suspicions, but we get in her headspace, and it's not too overtly feminine either. Uh, no, it's, no, it's, no. it's a very professional, it's the mindset of a professional law enforcement officer, and that's I what I really yeah. liked about her character. She yeah, was a woman, yes, and, and, I actually liked, you know, how like their first night together, there were people that enjoyed each other's company on, on a per, like they connected in a personal level mm-hmm. and it, and it wasn't just about, you know, giving, you know, the, the typical detective meets a dame kind of thing and has a supporting dame afterwards. Like she's her own person. And I just found her believable attachment to Rebus, you know, shows her own flaws. Maybe she's goes for lost causes, but mm-hmm. at the same time, she's also like a, a, an efficient officer and probably should get, uh, per- I think she was promoted in the end, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, as for Samantha, I found she came off on the page as a real life 11 year old girl. Like I, yeah. I just found her construction of her character. She was very believable. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked how Rankin wasn't afraid to kind of you know go into like uh, spaces about boys and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. and also his own re- and also Rebus's own thoughts about that in relation to his daughter. Yeah. Like I actually really like the humanness of that of the father daughter dynamic. Um, yeah, I'd like to see Anderson, more of that despite as the series his, goes on, maybe, if wondered. Yeah, Anderson, despite, you know, like, his, is he important to the story or not? You know, like, they could have easily have taken Anderson out and the, and Andrew, but they kept it in. And at least I found Rankin carries his transformation from bureaucratic prick to 
avenging father figure. I thought he did that very well. Uh, yeah. He, 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 you know, he he played a card. It may not have worked entirely, but he played it through to the end. I respect that. Uh, and yeah, very Dickensian. Um, I love the supporting cast of this series. It's like the books held up by its world building and its writing, but also its supporting cast. Like these are the two buttresses of this Scottish Gothic cathedral of a novel <laughs> form. All right, cool. So, what did you score them? Four and a half. Wow, nice one. Well, I, I went three and a half. But I feel like okay. it's a bit low for all the same reasons. I, I just don't think I, I needed Anderson's son to have that part. It was a convenience which which made it more incestuous than it needed to be, you know? I didn't think that... Like, I understood the placement of Rona and her daughter um, in the apartment. But when Anderson's son conveniently also becomes a victim of Reeves' big long game, I just felt like that brought in a dimension of pathos that was forced. And I, I, uh, it's a small point. It's a small point. But um, I, I agree with you, man. I think um, I think the, the supporting cast are much, much better than just passable here. Uh, you went four and a half. I went three and a half. I don't really know that there is a point a marks division between us because we both feel positively a, about it, but it's emotional a feel investment. Yeah. Yeah. Emotional. Maybe, yeah. It's a bit of, yeah. it's different, pers- it's, di- it's different perspectives mm-hmm. in my yeah, opinion, yeah. but similar perspectives at the same time, but each has, I liked Rebus song. a bit more than you did. So I can see how this, this I think so. come about. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, buddy. Well, let's, let, let's just do the math here really quickly. You're four, four and a half, uh, two, four and three and a half so that is eight ten you're eight you you are 18 for knots and crosses which is a very positive score at a 20 out of 25 and i am three and a half four seven and a half that's 10 uh, and i'm 17 and a half so i'm a point behind you i'm a point behind uh, you very good yeah is that right is I, that right so now that we got this all scored mm-hmm. here comes the question yeah would you continue with this series I am interested in more Rebus, and I would join you on a further exploration of this Edinburgh detective. Yes, quite happily. Quite happily. I am very much the same. Cool. I was just thinking, like, the next since the next time that I am on some mm-hmm. uh, trip, if that ever happens in the near future, uh, if I were to, or, you know, if I were to go to a place where I need something to read quickly, I would definitely pick up a hide and seek from my closet there and uh, <laughs> yeah, well, dig into it. Yeah. You've got a box full of them. Thanks to, uh, thanks to family friend, John. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Well, just before we sign off then, Josh, um, why don't you say a thing or two about what's coming up next on Lighting the Pipes? So in the next episode, we're going to be dealing with our friend Graham Green again. Uh, we talked about the confidential agent uh, on, yeah. in our last season. And uh, now we're going to be delving into the quiet American. That's now, right. interestingly enough, this started when I sent you for your birthday a copy mm-hmm. of the quiet American uh, based on your liking of the confidential agent. That's right. And so uh, we decided to, at the last moment, add it to our books list. We actually kind of pushed it up in the middle. Sorry, we, we, did, we actually yeah. kind of bumped it up. <laughs> up to, up to next episode basically mm-hmm, yeah. so uh, i myself have that coming from amazon in a day or two so i will be uh diving into that soon fantastic i'm looking forward to it uh this season's really got legs now i've i've enjoyed each of these uh, long reads and the short reads that we've gone back to um to kind of represent for listeners it's been fun this summer and uh, i look forward to the autumn taking us into new directions 
Me too, man. Me too. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our, our strip down of uh, knots and crosses. And yeah, a positive one here from us today. Absolutely. I, I agree to that. <laughs> All right, pal. Well, listen, you take care. And everybody, thanks again for tuning in. And we'll, uh, we'll catch you back here on Lighten the Pipes very soon. See you next time. Thank you.